0: Good to see everybody. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Seeing as we haven't met in a few weeks because of the holidays, let's just review a little bit. Uh, we have entered into 2 Peter chapter 2, where the emphasis of this chapter is a warning against false prophets. Now, when I say prophet, I mean anyone who claims to speak for God. So today we've Pastors, teachers, evangelists, anyone who is a spokesman for God uh, in the most general sense is a prophet. Now for the last three weeks that we were in Second Peter 2 before we uh, broke for the holidays, we simply read the first uh, three verses of Second Peter 2 and used them as a springboard to uh, launch us into a three-week topical study which we entitled Beware of False Prophets. Now, in that series, guys, if you were here, you remember that we focused our attention primarily on Matthew 7 uh, in verses 15 to 20 for the most part, where the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to uh, beware of those who would come dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly would be ravenous wolves. The Greek word translated ravenous means destructively vicious. Destructively vicious, because as Jesus said, These false shepherds would seek to snatch sheep and uh, turn them away from the truth and carry them down the broad way to hell. So let's look at verse 1 now. But there were also, he ends chapter 1, by the way, by talking about how holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit and were given God's word to write down, which became our New Testament or, and even the Old Testament, uh, then he goes and says, but there are, were false prophets. Okay, There were good prophets, of course, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there would be false teachers among you. And again, Peter is basically saying that uh, those who claim to speak on behalf of God, but are really not speaking for God, these would be false spokesmen, false prophets. Peter is saying, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. Uh, These false prophets were among God's people in the Old Testament times. As we've already pointed out, much of the ministries of God's true prophets uh, in the Old Testament was taken up with confronting, correcting, and even rebuking false prophets who were like a cancer in the land of Israel. All you have to do is just read uh, the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the the minor prophets, and so on, to see how rife the uh, land was with false prophets. Prophets and so on. Now, Peter said they were around in the Old Testament times and that they would also plague the Christian church in New Testament times or in the church age, and they have. They have. And Jesus prophesied they would continue. So, what are they is it going to be over with these people? Well, Jesus prophesied that false prophets would continue and would actually reach their apex, during the tribulation period, and uh, all the way up to his second coming. Uh, you know, I'll just read you Matthew 24, a few verses, just to give you the flavor of this, and this was the Olivet Discourse, this uh, private briefing that Jesus gave uh, four of his disciples in the Mount of Olives, when they asked him, what's going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age, and so on, and Jesus launched into this teaching that we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He said in verse 4, Jesus said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. That is the opening statement uh, with regard to the final years before Christ's return. That spiritual deception would be on the rise like never before. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Signs and wonders is uh, Greek words that actually refer to miracles, a genuine miracles. Satan has real power to do real miracles. Second Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 9 to 11, uh, Paul said that uh, because people reject the love of the truth that they might be saved when the Antichrist comes, uh, they're going to be uh, deeply deceived by this man who was able to do lying signs and wonders. Miracles that will point not to the truth as Jesus' miracles did, but away from the truth uh, to the lies of the devil. So again, 2 Peter 2 verse 1, so there were these many false prophets among God's people in the Old Testament times, as there will be false teachers among you in the church age. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Destructive heresies, guys, literally means teachings that will destroy a person in hell. There are non destructive heresies, in other words, teachings that are wrong, but will not damn a person to hell if believed. But then there are those that are destructive or damning heresies. The word heresy originally meant to make a choice, to make a choice. Greek scholar Marvin Vincent explains, and I'm quoting him, a heresy is strictly the choice of an opinion contrary to that usually received. And so we have what's called um, orthodox doctrines, doctrines that the Christian doctrine means teaching. We have uh, certain fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And when somebody deviates from those, depending on if they're essential doctrines. Now, essential doctrines are those doctrines uh, in the Bible that are essential for salvation. Jesus is God in human form. He rose bodily from the dead and so on. Those are non-negotiable. If you want to be saved, you have to believe that. A damning heresy would be, no, Christ is not the Son of God. No, he didn't rise from the dead bodily, and that kind of thing. And then, of course, there are other non-essential and non-damning heresies that I'm not saying are unimportant. I mean, some of them are important, but just not important enough that your salvation hangs on them. But to make a choice, basically. Now, in time, as so often happens, the word heresy came to mean a sect or a party, Uh, Not, of course, a party in the sense of revelry, but uh, as a group gathered for a special purpose or task, that kind of party, like a political party. Warren Worsby, author and commentator, said promoting a party spirit in a church is one of the works of the flesh, Galatians 5.20 tells us. Whenever a church member says to another member, are you on my side or the pastor's side? Well, he or she is promoting a party spirit and causing division a false teacher forces you to make a choice between his doctrines and the doctrines of the true Christian faith, end quote. So, um, beware. all right? Beware. Satan has come to steal, kill, destroy, to divide and conquer. Now, Peter warned that these false teachers would infiltrate the church under the guise of good shepherds. And when they did infiltrate the church, they would bring in, secretly bring in, destructive heresies. Now, This has always baffled me a little bit because, you know, Jesus warned us false prophets were coming. Paul warned us they were coming. Peter also warned us they were coming. Then in Jude verse 4, he said, they're here. And they crept into the church unnoticed. How did these false teachers creep into the church unnoticed when the church had so many different warnings, clear warnings, starting with the Lord Jesus himself, that they were coming? To be on guard, be vigilant. The devil is going to try to sow the tares among the wheat. He's going to try to sow his people. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 talked about those who um, come across as ministers of righteousness but are really the servants of the devil. How did these folks come in the church unnoticed? I have to believe, and I'm talking about back then and even today, they're still coming into the church. They come in because of gullible, I believe, and undiscerning pastors and church leaders who are looking for what works, quote-unquote, what is novel, you know, some new thing, or simply leaders in the church who are taken captive by the cult of personality and were not discerning nor being vigilant. A lot of churches get sucked into the whole false teacher, false prophet thing because these guys come across very professional uh they come they're very charismatic oftentimes um they're cool you know got your hipster pastors you know with the skinny jeans you'll you'll never see me in a pair of skinny jeans probably not, praise the lord uh the world is not ready for me you know it'd be kind of like putting 10 pounds of baloney in a two-pound bag but uh you know but but anyway, uh, you know they come across cool and they're hip and the people are drawn to that and they become these celebrity pastors, right? And these churches grow like crazy because, hey, everyone wants to see and, and, and sit under the cool pastor. And as I said before, guys, God doesn't do cool. Cool is pride, okay? Look at me, I'm cool. God doesn't do cool. I, I hate to break it to some of these hipster pastors. God does humble. God does broken. But, but he doesn't do cool, okay? But people are drawn to that. Peter has in mind that when he talks about these heresies, he has in mind heresies that are damning or destructive heresies because he says these, these false prophets will deny, deny the Lord who what? Bought them. The word bought is the Greek word agorazo, and it means to purchase or to redeem out of the marketplace. And It was a word that was used of purchasing slaves out of the slave market. Of course, we know that we were redeemed from the, uh, the devil and uh, sin and death through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. Uh, that's how we were redeemed. He bought us out of the slave market. We were the slaves of Satan, of sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ through his blood paid for our redemption. He set us free, and now we are his children. But um, they will deny, Peter said. A uh, very strong word in the Greek, and it means to refuse, to be unwilling, or to firmly say no. Well, what is that, exactly does that mean? What's, what's Peter saying? It means to deny the Lord by rejecting his person and his work. It means to be unwilling to accept and firmly say no to who he claimed to be and the power of what he did on Calvary's cross. It's to deny him and his work, basically. Okay? We often think of those who deny the Lord as those who deny his divinity. I mean, that's mostly the, the thing we think about when uh, we talk about somebody denying the Lord. We think of them denying his deity, uh, his divinity, and, and certainly that's true. I just want you to realize that the very first heresy in the church, in the church age, was not against Jesus' divinity. It was against his humanity, against his humanity. It was heresy that had its roots in Gnosticism, Gnosticism. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. But Gnostic knowledge was a mystical kind of a knowledge. The Gnostics were always teaching people that if they meditated a certain way, see, they had these techniques, right? People like techniques and formulas. But the Gnostics were always teaching people that if they meditated a certain way or chanted the right way, well, uh, they would enter into this realm of hidden knowledge, and all the secret treasures of this hidden spiritual wisdom and knowledge would be unlocked to them. And it was appealing to people. Well, I can do things to connect with God. Of course, we see this uh, very much today in the church where you have people that have latched on to formulas such as contemplative prayer and, uh, and where they will repeat a mantra over and over again uh, you know, or use breath uh, exercises to enter a, an altered state of consciousness known as the silence. And there they connect with God in a way that normal Christians, see, this is the spiritual elite. Look at us. We've learned techniques whereby we can actually enter into God's presence and connect with him in a way that ordinary Christians can't. Beware of that. Beware of that kind of a thinking. It's Gnostic. It's demonic. Part of the teachings of Gnosticism, guys, grew out of the philosophical question, listen, why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? And these philosophers pondered this question. And as they did, they came to the false conclusion that matter, the physical universe, was evil. And since matter was evil, it couldn't have been the creation of a holy God. And so where did this material universe come from then? Well, it gets a little deep. And um, let me just paraphrase. I have a quote here, but it's a little hard to follow let me just paraphrase what what the Gnostics came up with okay the physical universe well matter is evil but God is good so how could a good God create what is evil well here's what they come up with uh, actually what happened was God created an emanation of himself and that emanation created an emanation of itself and this kept going kept going one emanation creating another until they were so far removed from god that the final emanation could create the physical universe but god being separate from it so he was not involved in it and yet it was still you know a part of him this final emanation some call it aeon okay um and that's how they got around it that yeah the physical universe was created by god but not directly Uh, It was the creation of, you know, different emanations that one after the other until finally, you know, you had one of these emanations that created all the physical universe. So God was kind of separate and insulated, you might say. Now, here's here's the real problem with uh, the teaching of Gnosticism, uh, that matter was evil. The real problem from a doctrinal standpoint was in the way they applied it to Jesus Christ. You see, the Gnostics reasoned. That if matter was evil, well, then Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh because then he would have been evil himself. And so many Gnostics claimed he must have come as a spirit, not as a physical flesh and blood man. See, again, an attack on his humanity. First, heresy in the church age was real against Christ, was an attack against his humanity. He didn't really, wasn't really born a man. He came as a spirit. Because he couldn't have been a man because then he would be evil because the physical universe is evil. And that's why the apostle John opened his epistle with the words, 1 John 1 verse 1, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Christ, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He was real. We saw him. We heard him. We we touched him. He wasn't a spirit. Remember what he said when he rose from the dead on that first Sunday or that resurrection Sunday and he appeared uh, in the upper room, right? And they thought he was a ghost. And what did he say? Come, touch me and see, does a spirit or a ghost have flesh and bone as you see I have? John was trying to refute Gnostic teaching. It was very prevalent in the first century and it, it kind of slipped into some of the churches, kind of seeped in, okay? Uh, to some of the churches, and some of the Christians were kind of wondering about this. And so John, uh, in part, opens his his epistle trying to refute the Gnostic teaching because he knew it was a real problem, it was heresy, uh, this teaching that Jesus did not have a physical body. Other Gnostics couldn't deny that Jesus Christ had been a physical man. They just, come on. Uh, Too many people saw him and touched him and interacted with him. So since he was physical and the physical was evil, and God cannot be evil, they came to the conclusion that Jesus couldn't have been God in the flesh. And so Gnosticism eventually morphed into an attack on Jesus' divinity. And that's why Paul said in Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let me just say this, guys. Gnostic heresy denied the Lord's humanity and to a lesser degree his divinity. But the Arian heresy, listen, became the dominant heresy that denied Jesus' divinity. Gnostics, yeah, but they were more than anything else. Those that believed Jesus did not come in the flesh. Some of them, yeah, he was definitely physical, so he couldn't be God because God... That would make god evil and so on and so forth but the group that really um starting with a man named arius uh, the group that really uh, came against Christ's divinity was the uh, arian followers or the arian heresy what one church historian explains let me quote it to you he said in the course of christian history few events loom larger than the council of nicaea in 325 this became such a problem that uh, they they called the church council, the Council of Nicaea, in 325 to deal with this issue. Was Jesus Christ really God in human form or what? The uh, historian goes on, when the newly converted Roman Emperor Constantine called bishops, that's when the council took place, when Constantine, who uh, they say was newly converted to Christianity, I doubt that, but okay, uh, he called bishops from around the world to present-day Turkey. Uh, the church had reached a theological crossroads led by an Alexandrian theologian named Arius, where one school of thought argued that Jesus had undoubtedly been a remarkable leader, but he was not God in flesh. Arius proved an expert logician and master of extracting biblical proof texts that seemingly illustrated differences between Jesus and God, such as John fourteen twenty-eight: The Father is greater than I, Jesus said. In essence, Arius argued that Jesus of Nazareth could not possibly share God the Father's unique divinity. Well, another historian kind of continues along those lines and said, look, he said most of the bishops were repelled by the idea that Jesus Christ could be thought of as what uh, to them amounted to a created being. When they worshipped Christ, they didn't, didn't worship a creature, they worshipped God. They were saved not by a created being, but by God. The bishops proceeded to craft a creedal statement of faith concerning what they believed about the Son of God. The bishops wrote in that statement that Jesus Christ was, and this is part of the Nicene Creed, He was God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. A key phrase, the author says, was the term uh, of one substance, which translates the Greek word chomousius. Uh, this means that what God is, in his essence, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also. Eventually, all the bishops, except for two, signed the accretal the, uh, statement, believing that it contained the ancient faith of the apostolic church, and that it was an accurate reflection of the truth of God's nature, to which the New Testament points." End quote. Now look, the Arian heresy, that Jesus was a created being, and not God from all eternity remained buried in the church among apostate Christians down through the centuries, and it was eventually resurrected to become the foundational doctrine of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, also known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Their whole uh, movement is built on the Arian heresy, that uh, Jesus Christ uh, was not God from all eternity, he was a created being. The first creative act of Jehovah God, and then through Jesus, Jesus created all other things. That's not what our Bibles teach. Our Bibles teach that by him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made, right? John 1 verse 4. But uh, obviously the Jehovah's Witnesses definitely would fit into the category of those who denied the Lord who bought them. But of course, they're not alone. They're not alone. Um, author and commentator william mcdonald asks where are these false teachers found to mention perhaps the most obvious places they are found in then he gives a list of some of the some of the more well-known places where this kind of teaching is found he said uh, in liberal and neo-orthodox protestantism a lot of liberal churches uh, liberal roman catholicism unitarianism and universalism these are doctrines that uh, you can go online and check out Also, uh, Russellism, that was the old way of saying Job's Witnesses, Uh, Mormonism, Christian science, Unity School of Christianity, Christadelphinism, uh, Armstrongism, the Radio Church of God. He goes on, while professing to be ministers of righteousness, these groups, they secretly bring in, and there's others, soul-destroying heresies alongside true Bible doctrine. It is a deliberately deceptive mixture, devil's very clever, He's not going to just win a lot of people over with just giving them lies. He takes uh, just enough lies, mixes it with just enough of God's truth where it sounds palatable, where it sounds like it makes sense, okay? But um, secretly bringing in soul-destroying heresies alongside true biblical doctrine. Uh, It is a deliberately deceptive mixture of the false and the true. Primarily, they peddle a system of denials. Here are some of the denials which can be found among certain of the groups listed above. They deny the verbal plenary inspiration, that God's word in its entirety, every word, every idea, okay? Uh, They deny the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. They deny the reality of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, and his death as a substitute for sinners. They are especially vehement in their denial of the value of Jesus' blood which we know is what purchases us uh, in our salvation. Um, the devil hates the blood of Christ, and uh, he has done all he in his power to try to get people to deny that the blood of Christ uh, had anything to do with their salvation. They're especially vehement in their denial of the value of his shed blood. They deny his bodily resurrection, eternal punishment, salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny the reality of miracles in the Bible. Other false teachings common today are the kenosis theory, which is the heresy that Christ emptied himself of his attributes of deity. This means that he could sin, make mistakes, etc. Then you have, of course, the whole God is dead fantasy, okay, Uh, you know, I think it was Nietzsche who gave us that, that God is dead. Uh, Of course, then you have evolution, universal salvation, purgatory, prayers for the dead, and so on. Uh, McDonald goes on uh, and closes by saying the ultimate sin of false teachers is that they even deny the master who bought them. While they may say nice things about Jesus, refer to his divinity, his lofty ethics, his superb example, they fail to confess him as God and as their unique savior. End quote. Now, guys, um, inherent in in, and and McDonald just touched on it, but let me just say, inherent in the idea of denying the Lord himself would include denying what he did on the cross. That's obviously something that Peter had in mind when he said this about false prophets, because he said they deny the Lord who bought them. Throughout the history of the church, there have always been heretics who have taught that Jesus' blood shed on Calvary's cross did not atone for sin. Now, a lesser degree heresy is, and maybe you've heard this from some groups, that, well, yeah, it did atone for some of our sins. But now we have to work hard and, you know, go to church and do these religious works and keep these ceremonies and so on to finish the work Jesus began. See, aren't you thankful that from the cross he didn't say, it is almost finished i did my part now i'm rooting for you guys all right i'm just so thankful he said john 1930 it is finished the work of redemption was all done by our savior the only thing we added to our salvation was the sin jesus died for sinners god's word is very clear about the efficacy of Jesus' blood in purchasing our redemption. You don't have to turn to these. You can write them down. I'll just read them to you. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So these characters, and you know they're just heretics, who say that Jesus' blood didn't atone for our sins. That is a demonic lie. Get thee behind me, Satan. 1 Peter one we You've already looked at this. Verses 18 and 19, Peter said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, B.C. days, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was perfect. That's why he could die for the guilty, because God says only the innocent can die for the guilty. Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now Paul said in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, unbelievers, outside the covenant of God, well, he has brought you near now through the blood of Christ. You're saved. But the issue we're dealing with here and what the heretics are denying is something called the penal substitutionary death of Christ. In other words, penal means punished, Substitute means some a substitute was punished in our place, right? Of course, the penal substitutionary death of Christ is that he suffered in our place that we might receive redemption and forgiveness for our sins, which guys is the very foundation upon which the gospel is built. That Jesus Christ died for us. The innocent was punished for the guilty. And yet today, not only is that being denied by a lot of heretics. But it even seems to be that some Christians are ashamed of the gospel. They're embarrassed by the notion that we are saved by the blood of Christ because in their mind it sounds barbaric, it sounds uncouth, repulsive. And so they try to deny the penal substitutionary death of Christ. Uh, Paul mentions this in Philippians 3, verse 18. He said, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of christ paul was dealing with these people in his day and we're still dealing with them in our day i've told you about an author uh, who's alive right now and wrote a very popular book uh, he's not alone i'll just throw his name out steve chalk uh, he rejects the idea of penal substitution uh, in his book the lost message of jesus in that book he claims that um such a doctrine that the father punished the son that you and I might have salvation. Uh, he calls that cosmic child abuse. Uh, what parent beats their child who is innocent because of somebody else's guilt? I think he used the illustration. It's kind of like um, uh, somebody does something wrong and you go over and kick your dog because you know, that doesn't make sense to him. Well, obviously, he's not a believer, he's a heretic because nobody with the Holy Spirit inside of them, nobody who is saved, can deny that the blood of Christ was shed, that we might be forgiven and go to heaven. The gospel is built on that. You say, well, that's incredible. I mean, is, it, is that being taught a lot that people are denying the, the, the penal substitutionary atoning death of Christ? It's happening more than you realize. I I hear stories about major conventions by certain Christian groups, I'm talking thousands strong, who will invite one of these speakers to address this convention. And they get up there, they make some of these statements, and people are cheering, and it's like, what? I mean, it's just amazing the times we're living in. Um, But it, it shouldn't shock us, this is actually a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, as long as we're looking at this. This is actually something Paul prophesied would happen in the last days. 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1. Paul said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power from such people turn away having a form of godliness but denying its power well i kind of believe that paul had in mind what he said in romans chapter 1 verse 16 for i am not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ for it is the power of god unto salvation and i believe what he is saying is people have a form of will have a form of godliness in the time just prior to jesus return but they're going to be ashamed of the gospel Which means they can't be saved. If they're teaching something contrary to what the true gospel is, that the blood of Christ did not atone for our sins, well, they are the very heretics that Peter warned us about. That were coming and they're here. What is going on? Why are they rejecting the true gospel? Well, because again, you have a lot of people who think that Christianity is a bloody religion. Uh, it's uncouth, again, barbaric. They're embarrassed because they're so genteel, you know. And um, so they're opting for a biblical gospel. It's not biblical, but it's they call it biblical. And they're rejecting, I should say, the biblical gospel in favor of a kind of a kinder, gentler gospel, which is essentially a crossless gospel, okay? A crossless gospel, as we've already said, is a Christless gospel. And a Christless gospel is not going to save anybody. I don't care how much you go to church. I don't care what you do in the local soup kitchen. I don't care how many candles you light. Uh, You reject the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, you can't be saved. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Of course, you all know it. Galatians 1, starting with verse 6. Paul said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. So he's not saying it's not not another. In other words, they're not teaching you something that's completely different. They're taking the true gospel and twisting it and re-editing it, if I could put it that way, so that it's no longer the gospel God gave. So it's, it's not really another gospel. It's the true gospel that has been perverted is the idea Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach, that's interesting because that's exactly what the Mormon church believes, that an angel from God named uh, Moroni, you know, gave to Joseph Smith, you know, a lot of baloni, uh mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, how that for 1900 years the true gospel was lost. Uh, the church is apostate so for 1900 years nobody got saved until joseph smith came and the angel moroni uh brought it led him to a place where he put on these special glasses urim and the thumim which will allow him to read and be able to decipher uh the golden plates of nephi with all the ancient egyptian hieroglyphics he could he put on the urim and thumim glasses and he could understand it and that became the basis for the book Of Mormon. It's interesting how Paul (laughs) warns us in advance, right? Holy Spirit knows what's coming. He put it in his word, right? Uh, But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, cursed to the lowest hell, is the idea. Guys, penal substitution is found from Genesis to Revelation. One example would be, of course, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, where Isaiah tells us he was wounded for our transgressions. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus The sinless Lamb of God, right? The uh, sins of uh, the iniquity of us all. Penal substitution. Another, a substitute was punished in our place. Now, getting back to 2 Peter 2, again verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and will bring on themselves swift destruction. The word swift is a Greek word that we get our word tachometer from. A tachometer uh, measures RPM, revolutions per minute. In other words, how fast the crankshaft uh, of the engine is turning. But the idea be in the Greek of this word is speed. And um, in this context, it means that these false prophets have bring on themselves swift destruction. In other words, quick or imminent Destruction. Destruction is a Greek word that refers to perdition as an eternal damnation in hell. And guys, this is the horrible reality that is coming upon all these false teachers if they don't repent. They're going to face judgment either when they die or they're alive when Christ returns. But um, judgment awaits these heretical false teachers and all who follow their heretical path. Uh, Something else before we move on. This last statement of Peter tells us that the false prophets he is referring to are unbelievers. They're they're unbelievers. Uh, Those whose teachings would not only damn those who listen to these teachers and embrace their teaching, of course these teachings would also damn the teachers themselves to hell, right? The interesting thing about it and why I bring this up is because uh, it's interesting uh, the way Peter... Uh, mentions these guys okay what he says about them uh, these false unsaved prophets he said that the lord had bought them the lord had bought them and the idea is with his blood on calvary's cross this means that jesus death on the cross paid for the sins of unbelievers and not just the elect jesus blood on calvary's cross paid for not just the elect but the sins of all people. John, in his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, makes that very clear. And when he said, my dear children, 1 John 2, starting with verse 1, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. All right, you know, we don't want you to go out there sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Who pleads our case before the Father? The Greek word for advocate is attorney for the defense, Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, listen, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Now, I bring this out because it refutes one of the five pillars of Calvinism, which is limited atonement. Limited Atonement says that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world; he only died for the sins of the elect, because God wouldn't wouldn't allow His Son to waste His precious blood on those who would never benefit from it. But this is the reasoning. And in fact, I checked with several Calvinist teachers, who I respect; they have a lot of great things to say on a lot of issues. I disagree with Calvinism, though, and they basically get around this verse. Um, and I don't have time to get into it but but they basically say that you know uh, the idea that this verse teaches in fir- these verses in first John 2 teach that Jesus died and, and Peter's also saying that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world is is incorrect and they give their reasons why but I think it's pretty clear I think it's pretty he could have said uh, you know that uh, uh, you know that that Jesus uh, himself, uh, is the sacrifice uh, for our sins, ours only the elect? He said, "No, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world." Now they say, "Well, okay." Uh, when John says, "You know, he died for our sins," uh, John is saying for us, disciples and apostles, but not just for us, but for every elect person that would ever live in the world. That's stretching it, okay? That's really reading into. Uh, What is being obviously stated here. But here's the thing. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus was lifted up on the cross and because he was lifted up and shed his blood, he would draw all people to himself. All people. Now here's the thing. I believe that Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. I believe anybody can be saved. The invitation has gone out. I mean, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest, right? Anyone who comes to me, Jesus, I won't cast out. I'll never turn away. Of course, many will reject the invitation, right? And didn't Jesus give at least one or two parables that talked about going out into the highways and byways and compelling people to come And because those that were worthy and were invited didn't want to come to the marriage supper, right? It's not wasting the blood of Christ if people reject His gracious invitation to become God's children and live with Him forever in His kingdom. I mean, it's sad. It's tragic. Why go to hell when God has made the way possible for you to receive everlasting life as a free gift? Jesus paid the price. That somehow doesn't diminish God or the preciousness of Christ's blood. It just shows how hard-headed and hard-hearted many human beings are. But many, Peter said, chapter 2, verse 2, will follow their destructive ways. Many people will be conned into following these false teachers. In fact, the NASB translates verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. The NLT, many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality. One of the main characteristics of false prophets, and again, pastors today, teachers, evangelists, you know. One of the main characteristics of these people is carnality, sensuality, and in some cases, blatant immorality. Every once in a while, you, you'll uh, hear of a cult. I was, I was remembering a cult, a uh, Christian cult in Texas, and they had a little ranch and they all lived there. And this one guy who was the leader, everyone looked at him like he was some kind of a god himself, Uh, Messiah-like figure, but he had multiple, he's supposed to be a Christian minister. He had multiple wives. Some of them were just young girls, sick, depraved, immorality. And we see that. Not not all of these false teachers are to that extreme, but uh, believe me, they're all carnal because the Holy Spirit is not in them. So they're still natural men and and women. And because of that, Uh, There's no new nature inside of them fighting with the old nature for dominance to live a holy life like we have as Christians, right? So they can cover themselves over with this veneer of spirituality, but they're carnal. Why do I know they're carnal? Because, uh, in part, uh, of all the materialism that they wrap themselves in. They say that godliness is a means to get wealthy. Paul said, look, those who believe that, stay away from those people godliness with contentment is great gain but some teach that being a christian will make you rich if you have enough faith right and so on and so forth um but peter goes on he said no in verse two again many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed the way of truth guys is a reference to the gospel again and how will these false teachers blaspheme the gospel Uh, Well, first of all, the blaspheme means to speak evil of God himself or uh, of God's word, his truth. Uh, So you only can blaspheme God. All right. You can't blaspheme another human being. And I went this afternoon and I pulled up the word blasphemy or blaspheme on my computer program. And I looked through every reference and it was always connected with blaspheming God or his word. Uh, never another human being because you only blaspheme deity. Uh, and we're not deity, although many think they are. Um, but but it, the blasphemy means to speak evil against God himself or his word, his truth. And uh, Peter is saying that these false prophets in the church will speak evil of God's truth, but he's got in mind the gospel. And uh, again, how? Well, uh, by denying, and this is something we, we talked about for the three weeks before we broke for the holidays in Matthew 7. How that we, Jesus talked about these false prophets. Uh, How they're like spiritual traffic cops, spiritual pipe pipers that are standing in front of the, the narrow way that leads to heaven. And they're, you know, blocking that road or that path. And they're standing and waving people down like spiritual traffic cops down the broad way that leads to hell. Which, by the way, isn't marked this way to hell. It's marked this way to God. That's what we see today. A lot of liberal churches who deny, who deny the true gospel, which again is the way of the cross, the narrow way as Jesus described it in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. And they deny that, and in its place they preach a false gospel, which is a tolerant, inclusive way, you know, called the broad way Jesus did. And uh, this false gospel they preach is uh, very tolerant, very inclusive. It's all about being a good person, whatever that means. Uh, Helping others, which is the social gospel, okay? doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you're sincere. That's another tenet. And uh, other assorted good works that we should do to please God and earn heaven. This is the gospel that we see uh, many churches preaching, all right? When you ride by churches that have the rainbow out in front by the marquee and it says all are welcome, and we love everybody. That's their way of saying that we agree with gay marriage and homosexuality, That's not evil, that God made uh, people homosexual and heterosexual, like he made them right-handed, left-handed, or brown-eyed, blue-eyed. It, it, and that sounds good. It sounds like, okay, that makes sense. It's not biblical, though. God didn't make anybody homosexual. That's a perversion of God's creation. Now, I'm not saying I hate homosexuals I don't I want to see them saved but we're not going to help them by letting them think that they're okay with God only to have them stand before him someday on the day of judgment and hear God say to them himself I never knew you depart from me one pastor said and I quote the Bible is clear that many more people follow the broad way that leads to destruction than adhere to the narrow way that leads to life in part, credit is due to false teachers for the popularity of the wide road message they preach as they usher people onto the Broadway and encourage them not to look back. Their message of independence, personal freedom, and self-exaltation is inherently appealing to fallen human hearts who would rather serve themselves than submit to Christ. He goes on. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, only they will enter. Superficial, insincere claims to be followers of Christ are meaningless. Only those who fully submit to his lordship and obey his will demonstrate that they truly belong to him. End quote. Peter goes on to say in verse 3, the first part, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words the word exploit is a Greek word that means to traffic in to tra this is where they live this is their main ministry to traffic in deceit to line their pockets with other people's money is the idea so to exploit means to traffic in to covet means to strongly desire something or to lust after something or someone look Coveting what or who belongs to another is the root of many sins. So much so that um, it made God's top ten list of prohibitions. In Exodus 20, verse 17, the tenth commandment was, you must not covet your neighbor's house, which means to strongly lust after it. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor now false teachers of course are always coveting money in fact that's the only thing they're really interested they, you know we talk about false doctrine they, they don't care it's not like they're they're worried uh so much about what they teach they don't care but we call it false doctrine we single it out right they don't care as long as it's crafted in such a way that it sounds good to the uh, people they're preaching to so that people will give them money. That's what it's all about. The only thing they're really interested in is making money. And Peter said, he alludes to this, that they're very good communicators who exploit, again, make merchandise of God's people, make merchandise really of the ignorant, gullible people uh, using well-crafted, deceptive words. Again, they're very... Good at um, communicating, and again, couple that with charismatic, uh, being charismatic, and really, it's a powerful mixture. Uh, in fact, Peter would, on, would go on to say in Second Peter two eighteen, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. Sounds good, you know. When you sit there and you listen to these people, you're wild by their vocabulary and the way that they present things. And when you walk out, it's like, all right. I was kind of wild at the time, but now I'm thinking about what they said, and they really didn't say anything. It's interesting, guys, the word deceptive, first part of verse 3, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. (laughs) Uh, That word in the Greek is plastos, plastos, from which the English word plastic is derived. Plastic, guys, is something that can be molded into any shape, just as false teachers mold God's word into any shape, any doctrine that will deceive people so as to make money off of them, merchandise. One pastor said, in keeping with its etymological roots, plastic originally had the connotation of something not completely authentic. After all, plastic items often look as if they are manufactured from another substance, like wood, metal, china, and so forth. Thus, plastic at first glance deceives consumers. In a similar way, false teachers deal in phony doctrine. Their theology is not really based on biblical truth, but only molded by false reasoning to appear genuine, end quote. Well, consequently, because they traffic in deception to make money off of God's people, false prophets are often wealthy, often wealthy. Now... That should be a red flag because Jesus and his apostles were poor. They they were always putting the needs of others first, all right? I mean, if somebody is following in Jesus' footsteps, um, hear me, I'm not saying that a man or woman can't be wealthy because they have a business or they've invested their money wisely, and there's a lot of Christians who are wealthy people. I'm I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about somebody who's gotten wealthy off of ministry. That should be a red flag. This character, Jesse DePlantis, this word of faith guy, he's got four jets. And he said he needed the fourth one because he wanted a jet big enough to be able to travel halfway around the world without so he could get anywhere in the world on a single tank of gas. What, you can't park the thing and refuel? You need a $65 million aircraft because you don't want to make a fuel stop? But I mean, come on. And people give this man money. It's incredible and it's immoral. And those people are going to stand before the Lord for giving money to an obvious false prophet. You know, the godly prophet Micah described these false prophets in his day as, and I'm quoting her leaders, speaking of Israel's leaders, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. So these were spiritual people who were for sale. Look, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is no stranger to this kind of behavior. Uh, One church historian, and we're done, but let me just finish. One church historian said, and I quote, In the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church was notorious for its merchandising of the gospel, its crude efforts to raise vast sums of money by selling indulgences, which is forgiveness for your sins in advance. You want to go out and commit adultery? Go to the church, you pay some money, you get your forgiveness, your indulgence, forgiveness in advance, go out and have your affair. You're covered. Or so they thought. It's crude efforts to raise vast sums of money by selling indulgences helped spur the Reformation. Martin Luther was appalled when he finally got to the holy city of Rome as an Augustinian Catholic monk, wanted to visit the holy city, found so much corruption he almost vomited. But he was appalled and it did help to spur the Protestant Reformation. The popes shamelessly sold to the highest bidder the office of bishop or cardinal. Those who bought the bishop's mitres and the cardinal's hat willingly paid exorbitant prices for them because they could use these positions to line their own pockets. Father Chiniquay, tells of priests who extorted money from impoverished widows, refusing to say masses to help their departed loved ones through the purgatorial fires without the required payment, end quote. Look, Catholic Church has had its problems. Protestant Church hasn't been too much better, though, either. A lot of corruption in uh, mainline Protestant denominations. Peter said in verse 3, "...by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words." For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Look, even though false teachers won't face judgment until they die, they're living high out the hog right now. The Bible says their day is coming. Their day is coming. Their punishment was decreed by God from long ago. You can read Genesis 3. Their judgment, Peter said, has not been idle. That simply means that Though they haven't experienced God's judgment yet, it hasn't been abolished or ceased from coming. This is the problem with a lot of people because God doesn't judge an evil deed immediately. Well, people think God doesn't see, He doesn't really care what I do. Or the most twisted version of that is He actually approves of what I'm doing. What is really going on is the goodness of God is upon them to bring them what? To repentance, right? God is giving them time to repent. That's what they're experiencing. They're interpreting it as as if God doesn't care, God doesn't see. Uh, It's like one story I heard about a uh, rural farming community somewhere, small town basically, but one of the farmers was a, a, a devout Christian. And uh, during harvest season in October, uh, he wouldn't harvest on the Sabbath. He believed that the Sabbath was holy. And so he wouldn't run his tractors to harvest anything. You know, Time was critical, but he felt like, I'm not going to dishonor God. I'm going to take the day off because that's what I'm supposed to do uh, for the Sabbath. Well, the guy right next to him was a flat-out you know, uh, reprobate. He was an unbeliever, made no bones about it. And so he would plow his field, or he would harvest his fields on the Sabbath, and come real close to the other guy's you know field to show him, huh? You stupid Christians! Look like at I'm harvesting. my Nothing else bad has happened to me, right? And so he kind of shot his mouth off in town. How that you know here he was breaking the Sabbath and nothing happened to him either. God wasn't real or God didn't care, and so on and so forth. Well, the editor of that town's newspaper wrote a little article, uh, also a very godly man, and in the article he basically said, uh, Mr. So-and-so, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in the month of October. You know, and that's so true. People think they're getting away with something. No. No, God sees, and God will hold them accountable if they don't repent. He's giving them time to repent. And finally, their destruction is not asleep In saying this, one author said, Peter personifies eternal damnation as if it were an executioner who remains fully awake, ready to administer God's just sentence of condemnation on those who falsify his word. So again, their day is coming. Their day is coming. And then starting, guys, in verse 4. Now, this is going to get very interesting. Okay? Starting in verse 4, which we'll look at next time, Peter goes on to give examples of this very thing, how that God did punish those who corrupted His word, and so on, starting with the angels who sinned. Now that is a very interesting little section we're going to get into next time, and you know you you want um, to get a little insight into the spirit realm as far as you know what's going on behind the scenes and. Uh, come on back next time. Uh, You'll find it pretty fascinating, okay, as we continue our study in 2 Peter, uh, looking at chapter 2. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Of course, your word is truth. We ask you, Lord, to continue to bless these studies in your word. And Lord, one thing we should take away from this is that even though you're a very loving, kind, and patient God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, so you wait, And you don't bring judgment immediately. But you try to reason with people. You reach out your hands to them and say, come to me. I'll forgive you. I want you to be my child. Lord." But often people will swat your hands away and continue on in their sin. And someday they will have to stand before the righteous judge of all the earth and give an account and pay for their sins. We thank you, Lord, that I'm hoping all of us in this room, I know most of us for sure, have received that forgiveness. If there's anyone here, Lord, who has not, then please touch them. Please open their eyes. Please show them the time is short. Tomorrow was not promised to anyone. Today is the day of salvation, Lord. Work in their hearts that they would fall to their knees sometime this evening. Confess their sins and give their hearts to you. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.